Welcome to an original series, the podcast, celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your deep voice co-hosts tonight, due to a little bit of sickness, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hi, Patch. Uh, no, that, oh I'm not gosh. really, that's not how deep I, my voice is, but... I got Batman on the other end there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm Adam. Batman, are you into TV shows like we are? That's awesome. <laughs> It's actually Tell very Bruce comfortable Wayne if you get to, know it. to speak that yeah. way. Feels yeah. very natural to me. That's it. <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't ruin your voice too much, if it, even if it feels natural. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the altered voices that we have will not deter you as a listener from enjoying this conversation as we dive into Season 1, Episode 2 of Halt and Catch Fire, entitled FUD, or F-U-D. It's an acronym. It's an acronym. Yeah, it didn't have periods in it, though. So that's what I was kind of worried about was, is it like an alternate swear word for 1984 or 83? Or what are we doing here? So Elm, Elmer the, uh, Fudd, I think we Elmer said Fudd. last time. Ah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it stands for technology and 80. No, that's a terrible Your, your that's voice terrible Elmer Fudd. is adding to that today. It is. <laughs> Throughout the podcast, I'm going to find some other voices that have deep uh, resonancy and try to imitate yeah. those guys. You know, there you hey, go. Hale can't do that because his voice is really high. But anyway, <laughs> that just sounds like a really bad country person. <laughs> anyway, as we as we dive in uh, full force to this, Adam, what did you think of the second entry of this uh, first season? This is a very solid episode. A lot is happening here. If I wasn't fully hooked, I am now. <laughs> I kind of wanted to just keep on binging but i'm you know i'm i've refrained i'm avoiding that temptation to just go on to the next so we can focus on the second episode and really dive into what makes this episode work so well because it really does we've talked about this before but some shows it feels like the actors really just understood the characters that they're playing on day one, like they just showed up on set and it's like they figured it out. In some shows, sometimes it takes a season or two for shows to really find their footing and for actors to kind of figure out, okay, now, now I get this character. Here, I feel like they really know what they're doing already and we're only into the second episode. Yeah, and that may be due to the fact that this was a limited series, that it was like a summer series. So essentially, if this were produced in the 2018, 2019 time period, you know, five, six years later, it would probably live in a streaming service because of the format, because yeah. of its sort of tight production. The fact that it's not 22 episodes, these characters, these actors don't have time to really fully get engaged with their characters. And I think that's a benefit of having something as short as a 10 episode season. Whether it's behind a streaming service or not, I think that comes with those types of stories that you really have to get connected quickly in order for your shows to succeed. And I felt the same way about the second episode. I really walked away going, I won't call it better or worse than the first, but this really feels as though these guys know what they're doing. It's very character driven. There's not a lot of like action with regard to this new machine that they want to build. It's still kind of getting... It's not really even getting us to know these characters, although we are, but it's getting them to know each other. That's where I think 
this episode is really shining. Seeing how they connect with each other and how they disconnect with each other, how they conflict and how they complement is really beautiful. Watching them kind of get through this tension of this episode. That's one thing that I really saw in the second episode was what the title stands for. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. These things were (laughs) all in this episode. What I really felt, if I go back to my, you know, feeling film roots, like what's this episode (laughs) make me feel? I felt the pressure of having to produce. So from the moment the episode gets started, and they're getting in touch with the lawyers and having to say the right things and do the right things. There is a pressure that's on all these individuals to accomplish the task at hand, whatever that is. And I think that's really good because it kept the tension all the way up until the final shot with yeah. these three individuals in a quiet office at 7 a.m. on, I guess, a Friday morning or whatever it is. To me, that's just really good storytelling because it keeps you compelled without having a lot of action. So having a character-driven episode with that, this is very much Sean Levy's world if he were to be directing this. What I am looking forward to is what's the solution? They've really shown us a problem, and they've hinted at something, but are we going to come through? I loved kind of leaving with that because it really did feel a little bit cliffhanger-esque. Like the pilot. The pilot did as well. I mean, we're like, oh gosh, here comes the clown car of IBM lawyers. What's going (laughs) to happen next? As we've talked about before, you can have cliffhangers that then dive right into the next moment in the follow-up episode. This really was a cliffhanger that had the next moment (laughs) after we leave them in the pilot episode. But at the time, there was a week in between. And for us, there's a, a few days. So we're still capturing that tension that I think is intentional. That's appropriate for this uh, cable television show. Yeah. And you raised a good point a minute ago when you said how we have this kind of trio of characters where in the first episode kind of going in for me, at least blind, not really knowing much about the show or the setting or anything. I wasn't really sure who were the main characters towards the very end. You kind of got a sense, but with this episode, Now we know we have this trio that are working together and they have, as you said, a task at hand. There are several supporting characters that play important roles as well, but they, without a doubt, that being Bob and Cam and Gordon are the, they're the the characters we're we're clearly going to be spending the most time with in this series. That wasn't necessarily spelled out in the first episode. Because most of that episode was establishing the setting, the time frame, the family life of some of these characters. We're just kind of getting to know a lot of different characters. But here we kind of hone in and really spend a lot more time with that trio. Yeah. And it really starts out fresh with that cold open, which has a lot of stuff going on. Um, The show opens with Gordon being interviewed or being, I guess, disclosed by the IBM lawyers. I love his acting here. Scoop McNary is a favorite of mine. He's one of those actors that sort of appears in things here and there that you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this was my first instance of getting to know him as an actor. So seeing him in other things, I believe he was in A Quiet Place Part 2. And his part in that was so not Gordon Clark here. <laughs> so it was great <laughs> right. to kind of see him in a in a different role. But I love how he looks so robotic and uncomfortable in this interrogation. Like You can tell he's reciting answers. He's speaking fearfully, but he's not speaking as though the answers are trying to come from his brain. They're coming from a script that he's been given. And then we get into 
the opposite of that, which is Cam, who says, I don't need to look at your BIOS because I'm not interested in copying garbage. So the attitude is completely different here. Both have been coached to say certain things. In some ways, Adam, I believe that Cam is sort of using that script as guidance more than anything else. <laughs> right, like, right, right. That clearly did not come from Joe and the gang here at Cardiff Electric. Like that was absolutely Cam. But I like the fact that she's putting her own personal stamp of personality on these answers. But at the same time, she does get a little spooked because IBM sort of hints at the fact that once you open that binder, you're the first one going to jail. And they right. even tried to give her an out saying, listen, you haven't been here very long. We understand you're young and almost patronizing her. So it's kind of hard to figure out what she's thinking, what she's feeling. But clearly she's not comfortable, but she's not also like she, she doesn't lack in a little bit of confidence either. Right. And I think she delivers a very authentic response that even though these lawyers probably have no knowledge of anything she does or is talking about, which is kind of ironic, you know, that they're kind of laying down the law, but they don't know what they're really talking about from a technical standpoint. They're just sort of reciting their lines, if you think about it, you know, the, from a legal standpoint of what can and can't be done. Yeah. Even Gordon is accused of not being able to cut it for yeah. the job that he supposedly has. Um, I think it's said that he is accused of not being able to build anything. And you contrast that with what Joe says in the first episode where he says, you're a builder, you're a builder, Gordon. And he defends it. I mean, Gordon, I think yeah. probably as a result of what Joe said and the motivation that Joe has given him, the vision, he stands up and he says, no, I am the smartest person for this project. And there is no doubt that I can accomplish what I'm being asked to do. That is where I think he went off script because I think he really did believe in what he was doing. So right. it's interesting to see how both of them sort of react. There's some truth that comes out with both of them in their own unique ways, but how they get there was a, was a little interesting journey through their depositions. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, their whole point of being there, IBM and all the lawyers, is really just to intimidate them. And they were prepped well enough, I think, <laughs> that despite some of those personal attacks where they tried to kind of put the heat on or insult them, they kind of got out of the situation pretty unscathed and, and they sent uh, IBM packing because yeah. uh, they were unsuccessful in their attempts to kind of use those fear tactics <laughs> to break yeah. any of them. And it looks as though Joe was the one that kind of fueled Flinched that it. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So after his uh, little Joe versus Boz or what I called, you know, tall versus short in the bathroom where yeah. Boz is like, you better do this right. Joe gets in contact with, I guess one of the other, I guess the one of the main managers of IBM, his buddy Dale, who he was friends with. And it's kind of this interesting back and forth with them in the conference room. He says, you know, Dale, no lawyers. Why? I know what you're going to say. You've coached your team well. All we did was stay in bounds. They're, they're playing the game. They know that the game's being played. I like this scene because Joe basically explains the loophole. So I wasn't really familiar with the loophole and what was happening here, but apparently it's totally legal to reverse engineer this chip as long as the person who is building has never seen anything before that, which is hinted at, but I think it's explained a lot more clearly here. What's great is Joe being a little pokey bear here, basically he says, this is not the first time this has happened. IBM actually did this. He goes, just like Columbia Data, just like Compaq. I know the loophole. 
oh man, I mean, he is so good at this, at being yeah. able to manipulate. And I think it's where, as he's talking to Dale, that's where I think the shift is, where he refers back to his in-house counsel, Barry <laughs> is his name. He says, we're going to stick with Barry, just Barry. We will ruin his life. Joe is clearly not intimidated by Dale or by IBM. And I think that appears to be, on the surface, what gets them to leave. I don't think it's the interrogation or the lack of information that they're getting from Cam or Gordon. I think it's Joe saying, you're not going to win. We will take this to court and you will lose. And I think they were right. So then we see the mass exodus of the of the IBM yeah. folks going out. We also learn, first of all, it's been about one and a half years since he left IBM. And, and clearly he's been planning. Now this kind of reinforces that theory I had in the first episode that he's, Joe's been planning this whole event since his departure, or at least he's had all that time to strategize how to beat IBM at their own game, essentially. Like this is what his brain has been doing for a year and a half. That's why he's not concerned, because he seems to have sort of prepared for every and any eventuality <laughs> that could take place, legally speaking. So he's just replaying in his head, like, okay, I, kn I knew this was going to happen, and this is how I have to respond. You know, he called their bluff, essentially, and, and they can't they yeah. have really no legal recourse at this point. There's nothing they can do if they just stick to their guns, essentially. Yeah. And he, he did. He stuck to his guns. The plan is mm -hmm. working so far. So and far. After they, <laughs> after they leave, then Joe gets Gordon and Cam in the conference room. And then, of course, the credits roll as he's writing something down, but we don't see it. So after the credits, we come back from commercial. Oh, no, that's not right. We're not doing that. And he's writing two times fast, half price. There's something brilliant about the way in which we can see a dichotomy of characters here in the way in which both Gordon react and Cam reacts. And it's so good. This is one of my favorite scenes because both of them don't like what he's written, but they dislike it for completely different reasons. Gordon says it's a physics problem. You cannot physically do that. But then without Joe even saying anything, he yeah. starts saying, wait, no, you've got something there, Joe. It's almost like there's, there's this like telekinetic thing going on <laughs> and Gordon's like getting excited, like, wait, that, that's interesting, Joe. That, that's really interesting. Meanwhile, you've got Cam, who is saying, this is what we're building? And <laughs> it's even, like, reinforced when Gordon says, let me guess, you're one of those idea people. <laughs> and she's so frustrated because they're just building a beige box, which Gordon responds, you're not building anything. I'm building right. it. <laughs> and I love it because you can tell that they both want this to happen but they want it for different reasons. They want it to be different. Right. And in the meantime, you've got Joe who leaves the room, gets some coffee, and then watches these people just go at it. And I'm thinking that's exactly what he wants. That's exactly the kind of relationship he wants to build because both of those guys are going to, in his mind, I think, help each other. Right, right. I, I agree. He even smiles when he's kind of sipping his coffee and looking at them. It's, again, all part of his plan. He knows that he has to kind of pit them together against one another to get them thinking and to get them to push the envelope and really do something great that they both need each other, even if they don't realize that yet. It's also interesting, as you mentioned, how Cam's perspective, she sees sort of decades ahead where computers can and, and really should be 
eventually. And as you said, Gordon's much more practical. And he even mentioned something about how improvements are incremental. You're not going to see these quantum leaps in, in a single um, new computer, that it's going to be small incremental steps, whether it's in speed or whether it's in more mass market production, which makes them cheaper, but they're not going to be as powerful as a result. So he understands that that's how the industry is set up now. But I think he's been sort of he's been given a challenge or a problem and the sort of scientist in him, even though he sees it being impossible, he can't help but wonder, wait a minute, is there a solution to this? The wheels are starting to turn. And and it's just it's fascinating to see both of them essentially yelling at each other at the end of the scene. But that's exactly what needs to happen for progress to take place. It does. Well, Boz kind of gets wind of that because I guess he hears them and sees them arguing and make sure to separate them because he wants to be above board if we're going to do this right, as he says. Right. So he takes uh, Cameron out of the room because they're not supposed to have any contact with each other, Cameron and Gordon. Debbie, I think the receptionist, who has probably a little too southern of an accent for my taste, but that's okay. I think it's played for laughs. <laughs> she escorts Cam to her new office, which I think is a storage room, uh, if I read that correctly. And they also call it a clean room, which... Is a different, my definition of a clean room is a room with you know, no static electricity or dust. That's clearly mm-hmm. not what a modern no, clean room that. looks like. If you can bring pizza in there, it's probably not going to be a clean room. <laughs> no. So maybe they're just referring to it more in a clean room, meaning like from a legal standpoint, like anything that transpires that she does has to happen in this room and, and under supervision. Maybe that's a separate term that's, that I'm unaware of. Yeah, I think it's a colloquialism because we're living in a little bit. I mean, we're living in the the Russian kind of, um, you know, the Soviet thing right now or the uh, what do you call it? The The, Cold uh, War. Yeah. Cold War. Thank you. The obvious thing that I couldn't think of this late at night. So whatever. (laughs) But I think, you know, Barry mentions the the Chinese wall metaphorically. So I think clean room is another kind of colloquialism that he says to kind of define the fact that we have to keep you separate from the rest of the world. So as to keep things above board. Clean as in like secure, like in as in right. not. Yeah. 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 And Debbie gives uh, Cam some advice to go get some new clothes. You know, there's a three for one sale at Sanger's all weekend. They got great stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. And then we're back yep. in Cube City or the cubicle farm, I guess is what it's called. <laughs> Boz introduces Joe as the new senior product manager. This is a great little sight gag because. Yeah. You can tell it's a made-up title by the fact that it's written on a piece of like crumpled-up paper that he has to read. So clearly, he has just made this up in the last hour or two, or maybe even Joe gave him that paper in which he was like, I'm not reading this crap. And then he's like, well, I guess I have to. I mean, there are product managers, but maybe not ever at Cardiff Electric. You know, this is clearly a new product category, so they had to give him a title that didn't exist, perhaps, within that, that company. Like the assistant to the regional manager, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Dwight Schrute as to Michael Scott. Exactly. (laughs) I love the detail of the set, even down to like the Cardiff letterhead on the pinned up memos inside some of the cubes. I thought that was really kind of cool. This is definitely a more, um, I guess, a sparse set. Like there's a lot of stuff here, but it definitely feels like an early 80s office. Lots of just yeah. neutral colors. like Very bland. Like yeah, just, yeah, bland. Like they didn't take any real... Everything has sort of function, but there's no form. <laughs> you know, there's no thought behind it. You know, there's they, they don't have uh, any type of industrial design team coming in to kind of make the space 
as you know conducive to to productivity as possible no no you just you, you sit at your desk you do your work you put up your calendar and that's it you know there's no no attempt being made <laughs> there's some back and forth um what i would call surface level complimenting by <laughs> joe and boz we know that they hate each other or that they don't <laughs> yeah. like each other at least boz doesn't like joe and it's just fun to watch because it's completely untrue everything that they're saying where joe's saying oh thanks john yeah and I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it wasn't your faith, your foresight, and uh, if, if you'll excuse me, your brass balls that got us here. <laughs> By moving forward with this endeavor, you have helped establish Cardiff Electric as an industry trailblazer well into the 21st century. A round of applause for John. So it's just great to see that. Uh, Joe is completely in his element here, Adam. Yeah. I, I love that... He, he says, let's have fun and make a lot of money. We just might put a ding in the universe. Yeah. He's called out for that a little bit yeah. later <laughs> yeah. with yep. his conversation with, uh, with Gordon. Uh, Gordon gets a new office, which I think is fantastic. Much nicer than Cam's clean room. Uh, that, that is for sure. You know, one, <laughs> it doesn't say storage room on the outside, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah. he's got a window. He's got a lamp that he clearly likes to play with a little bit. He's got yeah. blinds, he's got a chair. All this stuff is very exciting. And this is where he's talking to, to Joe. And we get a little insight here. We get the, uh, the fact that Joe has sort of stolen a line from Steve Jobs. Ding in the universe. Steve Jobs, guy who runs Apple, he said that a few years ago. Yeah, I know. Isn't it great? We mentioned in the last episode that we both like the fact that this exists in a universe or in a world where Microsoft, Compaq, Tandy, Apple, they all exist. So one of the questions we're going to ask is, how is this going to fit with the IBMs and the Apples? Because we know, right. the, we know the track of specifically Apple. And you know, I'm thinking when I'm looking at Cam, I'm like, she needs to go work for Apple because clearly... She is an Apple employee based on what we know now in, in present day. Right. She would fit in very well in that work culture, <laughs> especially yeah. at this time in 83, because uh, that time Steve had basically set up two different divisions within the company that were fighting each other. To, there was the Apple computer team and there was the new Macintosh team, which hadn't clearly come out until 1984. So that would have been happening kind of parallel to to the, these events and maybe that'll play a role. I don't know in, in future episodes, but yeah, she would, she would have fit in well in those early Apple days. Yes, she would. <laughs> Unfortunately, she's at Cardiff electric where blandness <laughs> reigns supreme. Yeah. The end of the scene is really cool. Adam. I really like this quote from Joe. He tells Gordon to go get some sleep. You got a big day tomorrow. And he said, well, why? And he said, well, tomorrow you start building tomorrow. Now, I don't know if that's a quote from Steve jobs, I don't think so. I, yeah. But it's a great That's, quote, and I think it's It's a good worthy. quote for him. Maybe it's his, but it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. I will follow Joe McMillan, who says something like that to me, from my office yeah. all the way to my car. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what I think is interesting here, is that Joe knows what to say to almost everyone to get them motivated and excited. There are a few holdouts that we'll get into shortly, but almost everybody kind of he can read and get a sense of like, he's sort of a student of human behavior and he just knows how to motivate and inspire just about everybody around him. That's kind of like his superpower, you know, and he knows just yeah. enough about everything to be able to, as we said last time, speak that language to speak to those people sort of on their level. 
and to kind of be relatable. And I think that's a, it is a skill. I don't know if that's something one can learn or if you're just kind of naturally built, you know, built that way. I think it's motivated by both. I think it's nature and nurture. I really, it depends, yeah. I think, on how you see the world and how you grow up mm-hmm. interacting with the world. Because the fact is, we're not all salesmen, but we need salesmen. We need folks to be right. able to sell the product. And the pilot episode, there was this great line that Joe said to Gordon. He said, you know the technical stuff, and I trust you completely. That's obviously paraphrased. But Joe knows how to sell it. Joe knows how to vision cast. And one of the leadership books that I read a while back talked about the fact that when you create a project or a business, you have to have the visionary and you have to have the executor. They can be the, fir- the same person, but it typically leads to burnout. And I think that's why Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak worked so well together because you had the visionary who could inspire and then you had the worker, the, the, the rock builder. star. This yeah. Is, yeah, this is, yeah, the builder, right? That's a great, right. that's a great uh, example there where you have the two people that are able to push the project along using their skill sets. And I think clearly Joe, whether he learned it or whether it just came naturally, I, I think it's both. It probably is. And there's probably a history, more to his history than we <laughs> have been informed of as of yet that may play a role in sort of what's motivating him, like what's driving him at this point. Is it sort of yeah. some sort of revenge scheme? Did, did IBM do something to him? Or, you know, I, it does make you wonder, like, what's fueling this endeavor of his? Yeah. It seems like he can't fail. Like, not that he won't, but that he can't allow himself to fail. Like he's thought this so meticulously through that he has to succeed and at any cost. And he has to be in control because the next right. scene he's in Cam's office. And as you alluded to, he can't sell her. She sees right through him. He asks her what she's doing as she's deconstructing this computer. And she goes, I'm building BIOS code for a computer nobody's ever going to use. <laughs> she is yeah. not letting her guard down. She doesn't trust him. Maybe for better or for worse. But the scene ends with her saying, you're just a salesman. Go sell something. Go back to what it is you do. <laughs> right. And his facial expression as he leaves is like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a problem. Like, I, I don't have control of this girl. Right. I also think he kind of admires her for being like almost on his level of that you can't manipulate her. Like he's so good at manipulating and sort of controlling everybody, but she can't be just like he can't be, you know, he's immune to other people doing that to him. And she seems to have that same ability. Yeah. So So it's interesting. In some ways, I think drawn together. Yes, exactly. That's what I was getting at. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, Gordon goes home and he's rocking out in his car, which we've done this before when we get excited about something the next song on the radio, unless it's a ballad, we're just going to rock out yeah. to because it's the song that we that right. we need right then. And it's neat to see him do that. It re- reminded me of that scene in Jerry Maguire when he's rocking out to Free Falling by Tom Petty, you know, and yes. just like, you know, screaming at the Tom Cruise, that is, just singing at the top of his lungs, pounding on the steering wheel. Just, you know, everything's going great. It's like you're feeling good. You've got the world in your hand. I, that's how Gordon feels right now at this stage. Interesting. You make a Jerry Maguire reference. I found another one later in the episode (laughs) that we'll get to. So he gets home and he's really excited to tell his wife about the new opportunity to the tune of a new office and a little bit of lovemaking before they head back to the bedroom because the kids are next door or something. Yeah, I think she said they're playing next door. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, well, it's time for us to play a little bit. So (laughs) they, they do what good husbands and wives do. And before that, she... I don't know if you noticed this. She turns a switch off because she's making dinner. 
did you ever know about a stove like this? I don't ever remember stoves that had like the kind of on off switches for the yeah for the different no burners. never had any they're always knobs in yeah. my when I grew up this might be a little before our time perhaps I mean these they've been living in this home maybe for let's say ten years so maybe this is a kind of early seventies stove stove that they're still using but yeah it is weird in this scene because they're kind of beginning their their love making in the kitchen up on the counter and then she kind of just reaches over where all the hot pans are are on and i'm like no 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 no. that's a little too close to the you know the flame there you know she's like trying to get those switches but i'm just like that's you gotta look you're gonna burn yourself here yeah you know the bedroom might lead to the emergency room (laughs) and you you really don't want that right so you don't want to have to tell that story yeah that's the the er doctor tell your kids (laughs) (laughs) right so what were you doing when you burned your hand um, talking well, about my see, new office my, i don't know my husband right. got a new office and one thing led We're to another build a machine of a computer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well they end up back uh, in the bedroom and we're post-coitus i guess at this point <laughs> gordon is still excited about his new office i think he's mentioned this like three times maybe yeah that he's like i'm really excited about my new office and i can't blame him i mean when you move from a cube to an yeah. office i did this personally and I was ready to decorate. I was ready to be like, all right, here come the pops. Here come the nice chairs. We're yeah. going to turn the fluorescents off and put the lamps up. It's going to be great. So, yeah, I can't blame him for being that excited. I mean, just to have a closed space where you don't have prying eyes on you at all times. You know, right. if you need to shut your eyes for a few minutes, like you can kind of do that. Right. But not in a cubicle. So, yeah, it's a big deal. And, and it's a big jump for him to go from where he was to where he is now. He clearly stepped over a few steps in the food chain <laughs> to get he did. where he, he did. is. This is also where Donna asks him about who they hired to write the BIOS. Right. And he mentions that it's someone named Gordon, or Gordon, Cameron Howe. He's Gordon. Not, not that person. Yes. Cameron Howe. And she's like, well, is he good? And he doesn't correct her when she says he. And that's never good. You know, like, why? No. What? Why? Stop it. Like, just, just why? Do you like her? Are you worried that? <laughs> Donna will be jealous. Like, what motivates you to not just say, "Oh no, no, it's a, it's it's a woman." Like, what does he think is going to happen? Like, it's just yeah, it's just a strange. But this has happened in a lot of narrative storytelling. You know, there's mm-hmm. this type of situation. So it's, it's yeah. I don't know if I would ever. I mean, I don't know why one would lie about that unless there was unless you were in a relationship with that person at work. Maybe then, but I'm not sure what's going through his head here. Yeah, I think it might have something to do with just. She's very dominating. Um, she could be intimidating. Obviously, he's not afraid to talk to her or to put her in her place, as we saw in the conference room. Right. But maybe it's because Donna is who he loves, and this might feel threatening to her that he's going to spend a lot of hours with this. That's true. Working very closely with somebody, yeah. although they're not supposed to work closely together, but they're yeah. going to ne- inevitably have to. Right. Yeah. So we don't know at this point what what's going on with him. It's just awkward and... Yeah. He just goes back to talking about his great office, which I think is a safe play for him <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. And then we move to Cam's office, the clean room, and she's getting yep. frustrated. So she takes a walk, and this is late at night. Yeah, everyone's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So she tries to go to sleep in her office, and then something happens here. And maybe you can clarify just some speculation. She looks at the exit sign. Uh, it makes me kind of wonder what she's thinking at that point. Mm. Any thoughts? Well, two thoughts. One... I was kind of wondering, is she, is she homeless? Like, is she someone that doesn't really have, I don't mean like in the sense of like, oh, she's a bum, but like, does she, is she like moving from 
couch to couch, kind of just crashing with friends. Like, does she really have a place to stay? Because if not, here she has a nice, a nice office she can stay in at night. But yeah, with that shot, with the exit sign where she kind of looks at it while she's laying down, I was wondering if she saw that as sort of maybe an escape. Like, if she didn't want to do this anymore, like, I could just get up and leave. Like, I don't need this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this for them. So if if I, if I want to get out of here, I can just walk out that door and never come back. And right. she's nothing to lose. That's, that's kind of where I was coming from. Then I was wondering, well, wait a minute, because they, they kind of cut back and forth a couple of times. And it kind of made me think, what's the significance of that? And then I started wondering, well, maybe she's getting some type of weird programming idea. <laughs> something, you know, like a weird inspiration for something with the new BIOS that she has to write. You know, maybe this is... Yeah giving her some idea, some kernel of a, of a new concept. I don't know. I, th- I think it might be a little bit of both because yeah. she's uncertain about her future. I mean, she hasn't been told whether she is going to be there for the long haul or just for the right. bio. She hasn't really, she hasn't been told anything really. She's just like, Hey, you're hired, write the bios. But I think she feels stuck at this point. And so maybe that escape is let's just move on. Once I fail, I'll just leave. And, um, you know, that's something that, I think we start getting a sense of as the episode goes on that she can freak out and take off because uh, yeah. she goes missing for a little bit, um, much to the chagrin of Joe and Gordon. Yeah, that just kind of left me wondering, but I think those are I think those are good observations. Next up, we're at the athletic club. I think it's an athletic club, and Boz uh, is talking to it's a nice one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very nice one. I wanna I wanna have a it's membership massive. there. It's very yeah, yeah, it is. Everything's indoor, like the tracks indoors and yeah, really cool stuff. He's talking to a guy named Carl, I guess, who's a client of his, has his own business. And he's also a fellow alumni of SMU. First of all, I just want to point out that Boz is rocking a nice headband and striped socks. Perfect for the year that we're in, which we've confirmed is 1983. And this conversation cinches it because I remember this. SMU went undefeated in 1982, but had a tie. This is before tiebreakers. Their one tie was against the main university in the state that I live in, the University of Arkansas. So they went undefeated Ah, and were unable to play Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. So when Boz is talking about Dickerson running all over Georgia, he's talking about Eric Dickerson, who played at SMU. So yeah, this this was the fall of 83, because all that took place in 1982. So we have a timestamp, which I think is so cool how it's great to bring that in. When we don't know, I think we were right. kind of unknown at what year it was in the pilot episode, and I think we got a got a little hint of it being eighty three. So now it's clearly towards the end of eighty three. If this has already occurred and in the fall, I mean that's right. So we're we're getting close to you know, I don't know, November, December, perhaps. Yeah, it's something. it's probably if the long weekend was Labor Day, I'm thinking it's probably late September, maybe early October. Okay. Yeah, because it's clearly early in the season. Uh, Boz is making predictions about the football team to Carl. He also takes credit for kicking out IBM or for running out IBM, which I thought was kind of hilarious because I don't think he did anything. And he kind of doesn't seem like he does much in yeah. You know, he doesn't do much in general. Like when he's in his office, he's kind of <laughs> sitting there. And anyway, it's one of those people that kind of failed upwards. It feels like <laughs> he just sort yeah. of never you know, the more, the more responsibility he, he had, the, the less he, he did essentially. Yeah. And I think that same day we moved back to Cam's office 
Uh, this was kind of a nice little sight gag. She's not there, but the orange crush is that apparently she's been crushing because <laughs> she just <laughs> just downs it. Yeah, uh, by the two liter bottle. By the two liter, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of sugar. Yeah. And Joe walks in looking for her. There's a funny message on her terminal. I think it's I think it's a throwback to or a a gag to like one of those text based video games. Like the way it was worded, mm-hmm. I forget what the actual text said, but it reminded me of uh, you have died of dysentery or you know, whatever, <laughs> right. just like that right. kind of thing. <laughs> Barry's asleep because he should be keeping the log of the clean yep. room, and clearly he is not. And Joe says, Why don't you get some air? I'll deal with her from now on. Oh God, I got to maintain the clean room log. Barry, you've got balls on your face. What? And he leaves. <laughs> it's like, wow. So we know who the smart people are in this episode, right? Yeah, we yeah. know that it's not the lawyer. Which <laughs> And Barry's like trying to like look, find something reflective. And he like picks up his glasses as if he's going to be able to see through yeah. translucent lenses a reflection <laughs> of his face. It's just he's. He's, uh, you know, lawyers are supposed to be bright individuals, but he clearly is not, uh, not yeah. one of the best. <laughs> well, you can blame him for being half asleep. I mean, I've, I've yeah, felt sure. that way where I've been like, yeah. what's going on? Oh, what, 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 what? Oh, gotta be here. And I'm putting my clothes yeah. on backwards or something like that. But <laughs> right, right. it was, it was definitely played for laughs. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Joe finds Cam in the basement. Uh, she's working on something, lots of letters and numbers. I'm assuming it's the bios and he confronts her where she basically nerd battles him and wins. You said before he knows enough about a lot of things that kind of makes him dangerous. And I think that she calls him out on that, where she starts describing her potential solution. I'm trying to decide if we need to do this multiplication in order to align on octal boundaries. Now, my gut says, and I'm sure you'd agree, that we can do a shift left together, three bit zero fill to the right, which is faster and gives the same result in the accumulator on the 186. But... I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. A complete techno babble to anyone but her, you know, and, and and it made me wonder, like, did Mackenzie Davis actually have to learn what she was saying or does she just memorize the techno babble? You know, the way sometimes actors will say play, when they play doctors, like they have no idea what they're saying. They just literally have to memorize it. It's like mem- learning Shakespeare. Like you don't know what you're saying. You just have to learn the words <laughs> and recite them. I doubt she has any clue <laughs> what she's really talking about here because it's super, super nerd speak. <laughs> yeah. We need to get this validated. So if you're listening and you understand what she said, please yeah. translate into modern English for the right. layperson, AKA these hosts of the show. Yes. us. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's struggling. And Joe yeah. says with a little grin, you're stuck. And it's like this little power struggle between the two. Oh Yeah. Because when he knows he's got the upper hand or feels like he does, when she looks vulnerable, he starts attacking a little bit. And he says, let me help with that grin. This is what I said before. This is another awkward moment where Cam thinks he wants sex. So she starts taking his pants off or wanting to. And I asked the question at the end because he comes up to the top floor and he adjusts his clothing. And I'm like, did they do it? Yeah, I don't don't think so because the last... The last shot that we see of him before we cut up to uh, you know to Gordon in Cam's office is him like you hear him zipping his fly up, and so that leads me to think, oh no no he's he's doing the right thing now as as her boss and 
coworker and he's not, you know, he's not allowing this to, to happen now and he's going to leave. He's going to take his leave. That's what I got out of it. He may have still been trying to like, you know, just fix his suit so it looks nice, but that's what I took away. But I also think that as you were saying, there's this power play, this struggle. She tried to kind of out tech talk him first and then he says that you're stuck to kind of bring her down. And I think she kind of uses sex in a way here as a way to kind of take back the control. Like, oh, well, I can be in control this way. That's a good right? point. So there's just this back and forth. And he takes that control away from her by turning her down and leaving is kind of where I'm seeing that this is all just a constant who's in control of the situation. They both yeah. think they are and the other one kind of throws them off. Yeah. At this point, I think it's Cam one, <laughs> Joe one. I think they're tied. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> she had the upper hand earlier when she throws him out for being a salesman right. out of her office. And I think he got her back here. At this same time, Adam, there was uh, some pilfering going on in Cam's office by Gordon. He's going yeah. through her stuff, which I just think that's just not a good idea, Gordon. <laughs> and what's her, what's his motivation here? Is he just trying to learn more yeah. about who she is, like where she I comes think so. from? I yeah. think so. And I mean... He finds lots of different, I think there's some like coax cable and he picks up a stuffed animal that's like homemade. And then he picks up a knife, which definitely spells sane person. So I think he's starting to get a little afraid of her personally. Like who did we hire? <laughs> right, right. Well, I think some of the items that she has, like you said, a stuffed animal, a switchblade, she's clearly somewhat damaged. She's kind of like a little girl, very smart, very intelligent, but one who, uh, who has, had to protect herself for a long time like that she hasn't been able to rely on anyone but herself so she kind of has put up this armor to kind of right protect herself from from getting hurt from having to trust anyone yeah and i think from here we see her going up to the bathroom in between there joe and gordon are talking and they both agree that after she's done with the bio, she needs to be cut loose, both for different reasons. I mean, right. <laughs> Gordon's like, she's got a knife in her bag along with the stuffed animal. <laughs> and Joe's like, she tried to seduce me. So they're both kind of got their own <laughs> reasons for like, she needs to be done after all this. Yeah. And she's in the bathroom. She's changing clothes. I think you're right. I don't think she has a place to live. Clearly, at this point, we haven't seen her with a, her own place. So her using the bathroom to kind of make herself clean again because uh, she doesn't have a shower you know using the, the spray on deodorant and all that stuff brushing your teeth yeah yeah brushing her teeth which you know what she doesn't brush her teeth long enough she brushed her teeth no. for like eight seconds that you didn't clean anything yeah she didn't get in there she yeah. just maybe her mouth doesn't smell as bad but you didn't get your teeth clean any dentist watching would be able to <laughs> give her some tips <laughs> dental hygiene is just not on point there <laughs> yeah this is where she runs into donna these are interesting scenes when you have a mirror. I always, when I watch scenes like this play out, I always look to see, are they looking at each other directly or are they looking at each other's reflections? And more often than not, because I do this in real life, if I'm talking to somebody who's got a mirror in front of I'm, I'm looking at them in the mirror. I'm not like turning to my right or to my left. And it, it just kind of makes me laugh because it's like, I'm not really talking to you. I'm talking to your reflection. Right. <laughs> it just anyway, it was, it was fun to see that uh, play out here in this scene. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right because they were both, I mean, she was she was brushing her teeth, washing her hands, and she had her daughter who had just come from the dentist, speaking of the dentist, and so she was, they were like looking in her mouth at, I guess, what had been done. 
And uh, so they were looking forward. And so, yes, you're going to see the other person first in the mirror and then perhaps continue the conversation face to face after the initial mirror conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of wonder if I'm having a conversation, do I stay with the mirror or do I move right. to the left or right? Like what's, what's the better, like in terms of good conversation, do I continue to talk to your reflection or do I turn to you? Is there some metaphor here of like, you can't really talk to me. You're not really right. talking to the real me. I don't know. Something psychological there, but we'll move on. Well, I mean, are we really talking to each other? Are these, these are just, uh, True. Yeah, images yeah, let's of just, ourselves. let's just get more metaphysical Captured. here. Let's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my background on reverse. Like, do you see a reverse? Because if you do, then maybe you're talking to the other half of me or the uh, alter ego. Like, this may not be the guy you want to podcast with, Adam, if you've seen the reverse of me. What is that know. behind you? Oh, sorry. Something <laughs> it's on a red balloon, is there. it? It's on a red <laughs> balloon or something with, like, fans on its face. <laughs> I just see two glowing eyes out your window. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to just hit the blur button right here. Okay. <laughs> Back in Gordon's office, we have Brian talking to Don's daughter about her dentist appointment. And apparently they have a soccer relationship, which always makes me happy when you have a soccer reference in there. And he talks about the meeting up this weekend and he says, And Vicky's going to drop off some homemade donuts that are pow, real good. <laughs> I don't know of donuts that are pow. <laughs> real good. So I'd love to have some of those. Most of the time they're just real good, but they're not pow real good. <laughs> if you know, homemade donuts can be good because they're so fresh. You know, a lot of the donuts you get at like Dunkin' Donuts, they've been made in a factory somewhere and then shipped out to all the you know locations. So they always feel, even when they're dropped off, like day old donuts already. <laughs> fresh yeah. hot made donut, you know, fresh made donuts are really, really delicious. Krispy Kreme, I think, came close. Yeah, they're the closest yeah, when, especially for their hot glaze. Those are actually made right there. But uh, I don't think all the other flavors are, though. I think most of those get made in some other facility. With nuts and soy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> made in a facility with nuts and, and dairy. <laughs> I like Krispy Kreme. Yeah, we don't, we don't have a Krispy Kreme anymore, but I was always fascinated when it came to town because of the fact that they, their marketing was so great because you walk in and you get a free donut right, right off the rack. And I thought, this is amazing. I love the way that they packaged their donuts. They weren't like stacked like in a row. They were actually like laid down. So right. each donut felt like it got its own place in the in the box. It wasn't just yep. like, hey, get off me other donut. I felt like it was, yeah. you know, fighting for position, but the box here was was that way. And I don't know if in New York you have this, but because of where I live, the city's kind of spread out. It seemed like every donut shop was close to either a hospital, like a heart hospital, <laughs> or some kind of medical facility. I don't know if that was strategic or an inside joke from like the donut industry. But if you look around where the donut shops are in my city, they're usually within probably a half mile distance of like a heart hospital or some kind of clinic or emergency room. So <laughs> here's so my theory on that. It's that the people that work at those places are working weird night shifts and stuff. So the donut shops realize, oh, we can get customers round the clock. You know, a lot of them are open 24 hours, the donut shops. So it's not because people are dying or getting sick from the donuts and need to go to the hospital. I think it's because the people that work 
and are visiting at the hospitals at all hours have a place they can go to get some coffee and true. get a, get a treat, true. you know, get a snack. It's a reverse. It's the reverse, yeah, it's a reverse of what I'm actually they're, they're, uh, Yeah, it's the people that work at those places that need, and right. perhaps near police stations as well. Uh, which which just further kind of <laughs> kind of pushes the uh, the perception of cops right. loving donuts further, right? <laughs> yep. So in this scene in Gordon's office, clearly there's some tension between Donna and Gordon, and I think it's well, I don't think I know it's because Donna has realized that Cameron's a girl based off of her limited conversation in the bathroom. Yeah, she says her name's Cameron. I mean, and, and what are the odds that there's another Cameron there that's a man, and that's the one that is working with her husband. So it, he was clearly caught in a lie here. And so now we're back in the basement. Joe is like, I guess he's pissed or he's just more amped up. He's got the BIOS file and he throws it kind of right on her table and says, let's get in the game. Like he's trying to really push this further. I think at this point he doesn't care that she's trying to be creative with the code. And this is interesting. I think that's what he thinks she's doing is just trying to be creative with the code because she wants to be original. And he's like, dude, take the shortcut. IBM knows we're going to do this. So just change it enough, and then your big ideas can be brought to life. Get through this hard part so that we can Mm -hmm. establish ourselves. He's not wrong, but I think he's misperceived in what he's actually seeing on these whiteboards because there's actually code there that is not just scribble or dribble or drivel or whatever we're going to call it. It actually (laughs) means something. So there's definitely some conflict here and maybe some miscommunication. And they're both too prideful to really kind of lay down their their boxing gloves, verbal boxing gloves with each other. And that leaves her kind of in dismay, like, what do I do with this? So we don't know what she does with it at this point. Right. We don't see her look at it. So we don't know, does she break the law to to look at it or does she just uh, put it aside? Yeah. Continue on as, as she was. Right. If she refuses to look at it, I think it's less about her not wanting to break the law and more about pride. Like she wants this to be hers. That seems like cheating to her. Like she's not really, even though she's being well paid to do a job, she doesn't care. It's more about, it's like if she's a great artist and someone says, copy this painting, I want a perfect replica. She's the kind of person saying, no, 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 I'll, I'll paint you my own painting, you know, with my own style. And you'll love it. Just give me a chance. <laughs> yeah. She's not a production artist. She's a graphic designer is what she is. So, <laughs> right. She's like, I don't care what ideas you want. Your ideas suck. And I, that's why you hired me. And we're like, no, that's exactly. not why we hired you. We hired you to give us a blue square, not a red cube with bedazzle stuff all over it. Please stop doing right. that. Anyway, at the end of the day, we're back in Gordon's house. And he offers to do the dishes, being a nice husband, being a guilty husband. That's what he's doing. And this is so cool. I love his confession to Donna. Love the way that he delivers it. Fumbles through the whole thing. Cam- Cameron's a girl. Okay, she's a girl. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why I didn't tell you that. Cameron Howe is a girl. Hey, J- Joe hired her. It was, it was his call. You know, I, I said girl, but she's, she, she's weird. She, she did go to Austin Tech. but It's almost as if he's thinking through the apology as he's saying it. So it's almost like he's kind of realizing... Yeah, I don't know why I said that. I really I really don't. It's like he's trying to convince himself that he legit doesn't know why. And yeah. maybe he doesn't, because we don't at this point. So he hasn't given us any reason to say. And it doesn't seem like it's a big deal to her. Like, she's not holding it over him after that. At least I don't see that she is. But I think he feels a lot better after kind of getting that off of his chest. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because in a previous scene, after that bathroom scene, and she comes into his office and says hello and sees his new office, she doesn't reveal to Gordon (laughs) that she now knows that Cameron's a girl. So I'm not sure, other than guilt, what's triggering Gordon to just come out of nowhere and tell her. He clearly was feeling highly guilty about this. I don't know if you call it a lie. He just didn't correct her when she assumed. He didn't say, oh, no, he's a man. He just didn't set the, the facts straight. Right, right. At any so point. So a, li- yeah. a lie of omission or a lie of, yeah, a lie yeah. of miscommunication, maybe? Right. <laughs> or a lack of communication. <laughs> so anyway, so now, now everybody knows, and hopefully it's not a non-issue going forward. Hopefully. Meanwhile, at the mall, Cameron is trying on some 700 club outfits, as she was directed to do or recommended to do. It's so funny because she's just so awkward, doesn't like these outfits. One of those outfits, I think, has a weird like side collar that she's like, what, what is this? <laughs> I have to be honest. They're not flattering at all. No, I don't think they would not. be on anybody. I can't blame her for, for being uh, unhappy with the selection. Maybe a grandmother or something, but definitely not someone in their 20s that's trying to make it no. as a computer programmer she ends up in the men's department and steals some shirts which is pretty much par with cameron who's making the equivalent of what a hundred thousand dollars a year twenty thousand dollars yeah let's steal stuff from old navy that's that's what you do just let's steal stuff (laughs) i guess she just hadn't gotten her paycheck yet whatever it's cool i just think it's her way of again being a rebel these corporations make millions and billions of dollars. Like they can spare. That's, I just think that's her mentality that, and maybe also a yeah. bit of a thrill, right? Like, Oh, let's see if I can get away with this. Yeah, I think so. And sometimes it comes across a little pretentious, like mm-hmm. as someone who calls out these ladies that wear these clothes, calling them kind of pretentious. Like she's just as like pretentious in her rebelliousness. I think that's, oh, in, her, in her own way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she's sort of a, I won't call her a hypocrite, but she's definitely a pot calling the kettle black only in her own way. For her to be civilized, I think would be so anti-rebellious and like, I want to do everything <laughs> to rebel. And I think that kind of puts her in a uh, in a Billy situation where she's always mad, but she's right. more of a sophisticated <laughs> mad. She's not just mad at mad. She's just mad. And maybe she has a reason to be. Maybe her past was very hard. I don't know anything more than what we've been told in these first two episodes. You probably have a different uh, perspective based on uh, having seen this show in the past. But from what we know now, it's, it seems like she's, you know, had a perhaps a difficult life up till this point. So, but she's yeah. a genius. So, right. And to the point you made, yes, I have seen this, but like you on Stranger Things, it has been a while. So sure, a lot yeah. of this stuff as I'm looking at it through a more meticulous set of eyes, I'm asking right. those same questions. Like, why is she so mad? What does she have to be mad about? <laughs> right. She's got Clearly a she job. was a student at some point. Yeah, yeah. Or, and she had a job at one place. Right. And now she has a better job, and a much better job. She had multiple jobs. As you pointed out, she was a waitress or at that bar. And she yeah. also was repairing VCRs for three twenty-five a- an hour. Apparently, <laughs> apparently she was. <laughs> the dying job, the dying occupation. Yeah. So while she's in the mall, she's confronted by some dudes and she thinks they're getting her for shoplifting. But in reality, there's a line at the end of the scene. They say, we've got an opportunity we want to talk to you about. And then we come back to Cardiff and here comes the chaos. Like this is the other Jerry Maguire moment where Cardiff is being raided. Like all their clients are leaving Cardiff to go to IBM. And I'm like, 
is this just going to be a two-episode series? Because <laughs> this is not yeah. going to be good for Cardiff. I mean, are we going to move to a different company that's not being rated by IBM and Joe's going to start over? But man, this was chaotic. This was absolutely yeah. one of the most intense scenes of the entire uh, episode. You know, Boz is trying to talk people down from the ledge. Uh, Joe is trying to help, which Boz says, son, this is about relationships. This is something you wouldn't understand. And wow, he's not wrong because yeah. Joe's clearly just about selling and not about relating. It's an intense scene, man. It is. And it's the first time we see Joe in a situation where he doesn't have any control, where he, does, he hasn't foreseen this, this event uh, happening. He didn't predict this could happen. So IBM kind of got him in a way. You know, they, they found a way around Joe's meticulous plan that he's been working on for a year and a half. And yeah, they mentioned, I think, in a meeting after at the end of the day that they lost 68% of their uh, income. Well, they lost 15 accounts. And the top three of those account for 68% of their income, which means they really lost far more than 68% because there's another yeah. 12 accounts that they also lost. And maybe that's another 10%. So that, what do you, maybe 78%. So they've pretty much lost two-thirds of their their income at this point in one day and all because of joe really and joe knows yeah. this that's yeah. not good what i find interesting is that we're told that they have two months of solvency left or maybe a right. month i think he says two yeah the account this is store. two yeah. i mean that's not long but that's i mean that's a pretty successful business when you can just be bled so drastically and still have two months to try to get your affairs in order right i'm not saying that it wasn't bad i mean it's terrible but that says a lot about your company being as successful as it is when you have two months of either working capital, you know, to pay your employees. I mean, I'm thinking in that Cube City alone, there's like 30 people in right. there, and that's not counting the managers and, and whatnot. And so there could be other circumstances, like some of the managers are going to take a pay cut for two months to keep it at two months. Right. Or they may have a surplus of cash from other successful quarters that they haven't, you know, they can tap into in the, in, you know, in the short term to keep them going. Right. There is an interesting thing here that I picked up on. I'm not sure if you did. When this scene begins, Boz is on the phone and he's talking to Carl, trying to get him to reconsider leaving for IBM. He said they've been together for 15 years. And I think this is Carl, the same Carl that he was talking to in the, at the health club. In the, and and is, now yeah. it makes sense because in that scene, this guy Carl is kind of not giving him any attention. He's just kind of ignoring him. And now it makes sense because he probably realized at this point, at that point when they were in the health club, that no, no, we're we're not going to be with you for much longer. So I'm not going to even say anything to you. I'm not even going to acknowledge you because I don't want to give anything away. Yep. And this is where the awkwardness just kind of comes to a head with that conversation. He ends that. And what you said last episode really kind of is amplified here because you kind of alluded to the fact that it looks like Joe had a master plan. Right. And when we get to the end of all this, with all those accounts being lost, Gordon says to Joe, you knew this would happen. It was part of the plan, right? And no, Joe did not know this was how to happen. Like this is, as you said, he's out of control. He's out of his element. Gordon gets right in his face as he's walking out, but that doesn't deter him. And he goes down to the basement to look for, not Cam. He doesn't care about Cam. He's looking for that <laughs> BIOS file or that notebook. So Gordon comes down there and he's like, what are you doing, Joe? Where's the BIOS? Where's the package? Whatever it is. I can't remember. It's a packet or a binder. The BIOS Bind, binder. Yeah. And Joe is just freaking out. He's throwing things all around. 
And he says, you basically told me to give it to her, to Gordon. Handing off responsibility. Wow. I mean, not even taking ownership of your actions, Joe. How big of you? That's, that's terrible. It's very revealing about his, a little bit about his character that if he can't be in control, whatever is left is somebody else's fault. Right. It can't be his fault. You know, it's exactly. Like, it's, there's no way. It can, and that's part of his sort of arrogance. You know, he, he can't allow himself to have made a mistake. So Gordon looks at the board through all this chaos, and he actually understands the code. Duh, because he's a smart guy. And it's revealed to us through his conversation and his revelation that Cameron is actually doing brilliant work. He says it's brilliant. And he talks about shortcutting and things like that. And it's just like this kind of aha moment for us that we're like, Cameron was working on something that did matter. She wasn't just trying to do her own thing, but she really was trying to make something happen from nothing. And yes, she had the integrity of not using the biospinder. I, I think at this point, we, we don't know, but we're assuming that she didn't. And so we're left sort of speculating where is she, where's the binder. And then we move back up to Cube City and there's this really great moment of silence where it looks like Joe is about to address the team. But nope, instead he just leaves and he goes to a failing audio stereo store. I don't know what it's called. It's like a it's like a radio shack. It's, no, it's just Right. He well he yeah, he's like driving in his car and I don't think he was intending to go there, but he sees a sign that says going out of business half off. And I and I immediately was like, Oh, that was part of his his whole directive was twice as fast half the price. So I thought maybe that triggered something in him like, oh, I got to see what's going on here. And that was an interesting scene where he goes in and he talks to one of the salespeople and kind of talks to him about, he actually wants to understand what they did wrong. Like, why are you going out of business? And I think this is really interesting. He's trying to reflect on what he did wrong and why Cardiff Electric might now also be going out of business within the next two months. So it's a really interesting moment for his character. Yeah, he asked the store owner why the store is going out of business, and he can't answer. And he gets mad and starts pushing him because he's frustrated. But I think he has a small moment where he says, you didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. And I don't know at that point if that's a positive thing or a negative thing, but the scene finishes with such a great shot of him sort of immersed into all this noise because he's turned all the stereos on. Right. And he's right in the middle and the camera's sort of panning back and and he's just sort of immersing himself in all this sound and chaos. And I think for him, it helps him think. I think it's kind of, if it's so noisy, it's so noisy that we can't help but just think. It's a, it's a nice way to, to finish out that scene. And so then we go to his apartment and I think... I can't be sure. Maybe you can verify. Was there a Dutch angle spotting at the very beginning when he answers the door? Did you see that? (laughs) There were actually a number of them in this scene, which makes perfect sense because his whole world is kind of falling apart right now. And that's exactly what a Dutch angle is supposed to reinforce. It's supposed to reinforce that things are not level. Things are not the way they should be. That Everything's just a little off kilter. And uh, yeah, there's a few a few moments here because he opens the door and that previous coworker or his old boss. I'm not sure Dale, what that relationship. Yeah, not sure what the relationship is. He um, shows up and uh, we get some new information here about his past, which I think is really it could be important. They talk about the fact that he essentially cost IBM 
$2 million in damages for a data for damage to a, a data center. Not sure what he did or how he's responsible. I don't know for what that. that is. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to me. Uh, that's definitely new information. So I'm wondering yeah. if that's going to have some, <laughs> some repercussions. <laughs> yeah. But then the IBM guy, Dale was not really upset about that. He's like, yo, yeah, that was covered by insurance. We actually made money on that whole thing. <laughs> of course so, you did. IBM. Yeah. Of course you did. <laughs> uh, and then he gives him a check. He's like, here's your unpaid vacation days that you never took. <laughs> it was like $600 or something. <laughs> So it's just, it's, it feels like a little bit of like rubbing salt in the wound kind of situation. But then we find out that no, no, they're essentially offering him a plane ticket and a job to come back to IBM. They were in fact impressed by what he was able to accomplish in how a week. How long has he been there? I don't even know. But really more than that, the year and a half that took to get to that place to plan it. Yeah. It kind of made me pause to think, would I take that job? I mean, yeah, Cardiff's in shambles. It's my fault. And it would be easy for me to just say, cool, I'm going to jump ship too. I'll go back. But I think there's something in Joe's past with IBM and maybe more that is preventing him from doing that. And that really comes to light in the parking lot. And this is a really great scene to pretty much finish out the episode where right. Gordon's in his car and he turns it on and the music's blaring. And it's the same song from when he was like happy-go-lucky coming home. And it's such a great contrast from that earlier scene because that same song now represents like, oh, no, that's just noise. I don't need that right now. I need to just be alone and quiet. He sees Cameron and he confronts her about the BIOS. And then Joe drives in. And as we alluded to at the beginning of the episode, this is the Trinity. These are the three that that I believe are going to be sort of the the pillars of the show and how they're going to work together, how they're going to work against each other um, throughout the course of this season, what that tension is going to look like, what the collaboration is going to look like. (laughs) Right. As Joe's driving in, he presents this idea of a computer being portable. So our first kind of iteration or idea of a laptop. And this is so funny, Adam, he says it will have a handle at which point (laughs) Gordon goes kind of like full sarcasm. A handle. My God, Joe, I gotta give it to you. This this changes everything. A handle. What a revolutionary idea. Yeah. The first time I watched this, I thought, wait a minute, is he being serious? No, 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 no. He's being sarcastic. Okay. I just want to make sure because clearly Gordon's been impressed with what Joe's been doing lately, but he's not having it at this point. Well, and I was wondering if it was like uh just no no, it's a full size computer that you take with you, like you travel, like it just has a handle on the screen, you know, you pick it up. And because there's a, a really funny if you go to YouTube and look for it, old nineteen eighty four Apple marketing video where they show like this woman saying, And the Macintosh can go with you anywhere and she puts like a full computer in like a carrying case <laughs> and then puts it in like a wire basket in her bicycle. And then starts riding out into the streets, you know, wherever, San Francisco or whatever. And you're just like, no one would ever have done that. And that thing's like 50 pounds. And (laughs) it's like, yes, it's portable. Technically speaking, yes, you can. It's not a mainframe computer. No, but it's not convenient (laughs) to move around. So I don't know what Joe's thinking here. If he's thinking just, no, we can move computers around that way. Or if he's, like you said, thinking of more of a laptop or... um, truly portable flat computer i don't know yeah and this harkens back to that line he says at the at the stereo store he says you didn't see it coming and i think that that idea is what he's trying to 
articulate here that nobody's going to see this coming. Nobody's going to see a portable computer that is legit coming. Right. So this is what we need to focus on. We don't need to focus on being the next replica IBM. I think in his mind, he sees both Gordon's building capability and Cameron's vision of the latest and greatest 10 years from now computer in this concept. But of course he has trouble selling it because they don't trust him. And this is where Gordon and Joe get into this verbal and physical fist fight. Uh, Joe right. says to Gordon, Before me, you were boozing that building and your balls were in a box by your wife's bedside table. And that just makes Gordon go off. Yeah. Them's fighting words. <laughs> Them's fighting words. And they, they went fight and, we see the shirt rip open and Joe reveals his scars. We get an origin story or what we think is an origin story. As he talks about being nine years old, being chased by boys that apparently chased him off of a roof. I think that's what I heard. That's what he says. Yeah. And that, you know, he wasn't like everybody else while people were watching the greatest game ever play between the Colts and the giants. He was watching Sputnik. Right. And it sort of, calms the waters a little bit and he kind of gives this opportunity he said i'm going to be in the office tomorrow 7 a.m and if you guys are here i'm going to know that you're committed to this and that's where the scene leaves us until the next day there's no words this is just great blocking great cinematography he shows up gordon shows up he goes to gordon's office he's smiling he's optimistic and then gordon kind of shuts the door without smiling and i'm like okay what does this mean? He showed up, but he's not talking to him. And then right. it's great because that where he's placed, he can look to his left and he sees Cameron. I think it's somebody else's office. I think she slept there and <laughs> yeah. he smiles, but she doesn't smile back. And then we get that last scene, that last moment with him in his office. And she calls him out on the story he told the night before. She says the greatest game ever played was 58. Sputnik came down a year before his line to finish the episode is that right oh yeah. <laughs> he's like yes he's, you're totally I just a salesman yeah and i think he's even more impressed by her now it's like mm-hmm. he cannot fool her and like you said before he's met his match with cameron maybe gordon can be, can be manipulated <laughs> but cameron cannot be i just want to add that in that scene right before this where they're outside and they get in that fight He's really trying to relate to them both at that point. He's trying to get to convince them both that he's like a human being and that he has a real past. And and I really thought at first that like his armor had been broken down in that fight, kind of both figuratively and literally with his shirt being like ripped open and seeing his scars that he was being for the first time honest and open with them about what drives him, what motivates him and what, why he wants to do what he's doing. But now I don't know if any of that was real. I mean, those scars, they don't look like scars you would get from falling off a a roof. They look more like cuts or some kind, but from Mm -hmm. a, you know, car accident or a knife, I I don't know. But he does say one quote that I really uh, appreciated when he's telling them again, when he's trying to relate to them, and how that they're all kind of unreasonable, how they're all sort of outcasts, all three of them. I thought that maybe we could do this precisely because we're all unreasonable people and progress depends on our changing the world to fit us, not the other way around. And I really liked that because it's true. It's like, these are people 
that are kind of on the fringes of society. They're not like everybody else. They're either far more intelligent or more perceptive. And so they aren't going to fit in with everyone else. They can try, they can pretend to, but ultimately they need to do what they were sort of put here to do. And yeah. I think they see themselves, or at least he sees them, as having the ability to go above and beyond what the average person would ever be able to accomplish because they see a need that needs to be filled or met that only they can see. And the rest of the world will catch up to them and realize, oh, I do need this. But right now, yeah. only a handful of people understand that. And, and, and this is where I think yeah. the magic of the show is really taking hold for me is that you can make the argument that, oh, this is just Steve Jobs in a new suit in 1984 in a different company in a fictional place. You could make that argument, but I think the show is very self-aware enough that as he basically plagiarized Steve Jobs with the folks in Cube City, he then said that quote later on, as you said, and then earlier in the episode to Gordon, he said, tomorrow you start building tomorrow. That's a Steve Jobs-esque Right. Quote, right. but it comes from Joe. And so as I'm watching this, I'm starting to realize that I think the creators, the writers of the show wanted to be inspired by Steve Jobs and pay that homage to him, but to not try to replicate him. Right. Because he is a visionary. He was a visionary. But to try to do that in terms of like, oh, yeah, you're just a Steve Jobs knockoff. No, they said we need to create a character that is recognizable as jumping off from that inspiration, but can be his own person. And I think lines like this that you mentioned and earlier in the episode really solidify that for me, that I don't think Joe is just spitting out language that he heard from a book, that he's just a quote machine. I think he believes what he's saying and he's not apologetic about the fact that it started from someplace else. Right. Make a ding in the universe. Very true. Definitely Steve Jobs said it, but tomorrow you start building tomorrow inspired by making a ding in the universe or as you talk about progress that's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with making your own mark and being inspired by those that came before you i think that's healthy i think that's part of why we need pioneers but we also need those that continue to move forward to push the needle a little bit further to go from mach 10 to mach 10.2 as maverick (laughs) does in top gun 2 so it's you have to have a place to start and joe knows this And I think part of his story is, at least for me at this point, believable in a sense that he did read Gordon's article and he wanted to find him and he wanted to put this team together. So those things that we speculated about in episode one, I think really are true. Now, the whole bit with the scars, I'm with you. I don't think that that's how they happened, especially since he talks about or Cameron calls him out the next day. But I also see that he uses that to inspire Gordon because he says, like you, I was an outcast like you, right. You know, you're chased by folks that don't understand you and you didn't get pushed off a roof, but you do have these scars just like I do. And it's this great blend of salesmanship and sincerity. And I think it's hard to read. It really is. Yeah. And I would say that I I agree with everything you just said regarding Steve jobs being like an inspiration. I mean, Steve Jobs was known to quote a lot of things. One of his other famous quotes that he stole was, we have to skate to where the the puck is going, not to where the puck is. That's sort of thinking ahead of where the puck is going to go. Like this is obviously an ice hockey analogy. 
But that was a Wayne Gretzky quote, I believe, before Steve Jobs kind of co-opted it. So he was using a sports quote as an analogy for the technology industry when he used that, when he used that quote, I think in the 90s or something. But that's my point, though, is that these are just quotes. The point is that Steve wasn't the first person to have the idea that we can make a ding in the universe. There are other people long before he was born that had the same type of you know, like Tesla, other people that had ideas that were so far ahead of the average school of thought at that point in time. And there were a ton of people in this period of time, aside from Steve Jobs, that were incredible innovators and people that pushed the industry in, in new directions. So I think Joe is kind of like a, a composite of different individuals yeah. that have existed in yeah. sort of the tech space uh, in the early days. And that's good. I'm glad we have that because yeah. composite characters in biopics, I think, get a lot of flack because they're not real, but they are right. real. They they embody the character traits of important people that are connected to an individual. So I think in a fictional series like this, it makes a lot more sense because now you're being inspired by real people, but you're creating a character that is a composite. But part of being a part of a fictionalized world is that you can. You're allowed to create fictional characters. Right. Uh, one funny note that you kind of reminded me of in terms of like Steve Jobs stealing a quote from somebody else. Right. It reminds me of um, Michael Scott. There's this great scene in the office where there's a quote on the whiteboard that says, quote, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, dash Wayne Gretzky, end quote, dash Michael Scott. <laughs> so he's quoting a quote. <laughs> right. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, man, to see Michael Scott in a show like this would be interesting. <laughs> uh, yes, totally. But, I mean, yeah. that's just, that's the thing. Quotes like that, even that famous quote that um, uh, from the atomic bomb that he has become death, that kind of thing. And But that's, he didn't invent that quote. He just sort of popularized it in sort of modern day culture. And so that's the thing. Quotes are just that. They're quotes. But it's the meaning behind them that that's not necessarily original. It's just a re sort of rephrasing of the same intent that's behind them. And right. uh, it, it, if it listen, if it works to inspire people, to motivate people, that's the most important part of any quote. You're taking a bigger concept and you're boiling it down to a, to a few words or a sentence that that embodies everything that you need to do or or that you want to accomplish. Good stuff. Good episode. Yeah. Yes. Very good episode. And I will quote myself by saying that that will wrap us up for this episode of an original series. Adam, what is on the docket for next time? Next time, episode three. And this one is entitled High Plains Hardware. And I'm just guessing that's a bit of a, a riff on High Plains Drifter, the Clint yeah, Eastwood I think movie. So. I'm going to yeah. take a guess. That's I don't know what the, maybe they watch High Plains Drifter in this episode and <laughs> then build some hardware. I don't know. They will get a handle <laughs> on things in the yes, next episode. Hopefully exactly. something that's portable. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you made it this far, Google that hilarious Macintosh <laughs> or YouTube, I should say. Go on YouTube and uh, portable Macintosh computer from 1984 it's the funniest video because i just don't think anyone in the history of computing ever did what this video <laughs> was telling you you could do it's, it's so absurd so anyway makes me laugh <laughs> ideas have to start somewhere and then they turn exactly into yeah. videos the precursor you know and maybe that's where they're going if they do i'm gonna really i'm gonna 
be really happy if this if they're just gonna figure out a way to make like a giant pc portable that would be hilarious <laughs> i'm excited to see your reaction <laughs> they're gonna put it on like you know robot you know like robot wheels you just with a remote right. control you know you just kind of move it around and it talks yeah <laughs> like how <laughs> yeah well thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation everybody i'm patch He's Adam, and we are out of here.